Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Jessica DeLong is the author of Saved at the Seawall, stories from the September 11th boat lift. And let me just say right away that we are doing this episode, releasing it on 9-11. We recorded it just a few days ahead of time. And for those of you listening, my thoughts are with you. And I'm going through this at the same time. I lost my very best friend and college roommate, Stacey Sanders, on 9-11. And I think about her every single day. And that event for me, not only changed my city and country, but my own personal life and sort of approach to living. I was 25 and realized at a very young age that life was not permanent, that every day and every minute was a gift and could be snatched away momentarily. And so I changed the way I live. And I don't know, this day is incredibly emotional for me and meaningful. And I was honored to get to talk to Jessica DeLong about her experience. And if you're listening to this on 9-11, I'm doing a bunch of Instagram lives throughout the day with different authors. So I hope that you start by listening to this podcast in full because it's amazing and moving and really important in so many ways. And then you can check out Zibby Owens on Instagram for the other Instagram lives I'm doing. And I will be thinking of all of you today and hoping that we all turn a new page. And I don't know, there are no words. But anyway, okay, back to her bio. So Jessica Dulong is a Brooklyn-based ASJA award-winning author, journalist, historian, ghostwriter, collaborator, proposal doctor, editor, and writing coach. She has collaborated on a wide array of narrative and other nonfiction books, including memoir, history, trauma, psychology, and neuroscience, health and wellness, racism, equity and justice, gender, parenting, law, and personal finance. I mean, what hasn't she done? She's taught writing with Voices from War and the Sackett Street Writers Workshop. Her first book, My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work That Built America, A Personal and Historical Journey, explores the value of hands-on work through memoir, history, and reportage. Her journalism has been published by CNN.com, Newsweek, International, Rolling Stone, Psychology Today, New York History, HuffPost, Newsday, Parenting, Cosmo Girl, 
and today's machining world. Her media appearances include Spike Lee's forthcoming HBO multi-part documentary, NYC Epicenter's 9-11 to 2021 and a half, which I can't decide if I can handle watching or not. The Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, USA Today, History Channel, New York One, WNYC, Martha Stewart. She also appears as Jessica, who stands at the controls in the noisy engine room in Myra Coleman's picture book, Fireboat, The Heroic Adventures of the John J. Harvey. I'm actually interviewing Myra Coleman soon for this podcast, so I'll talk to her about that too. Jessica is a DONA certified postpartum doula and a USCG licensed marine engineer who served aboard retired 1931 NYC fireboat John J. Harvey for 20 years, 11 of those as chief. And my guess is she is the only person in the world who was also a doula and a marine engineer, but I don't know. That's just my two cents. Okay, listen to this episode. I really hope you get something out of it. I find it to be incredibly important, and this book should be considered a crucial part of history and should be assigned everywhere, far and wide. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Saved at the Seawall, stories from the September 11th boat lift. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. And I know we're recording this ahead of time, but this will be airing on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is such an emotional day for so many people and for the country and everything else. So thank you for being the voice and, and bringing the stories to us from that time so that people can adequately sort of mourn and connect to the day through this conversation. Yes. This book, I mean, I did not know. I feel like I've learned a lot about 9-11. I lost my best friend that day. I've spent a lot of time watching footage and, you know, I've been down that rabbit hole many times and yet I had never learned the things that you described. And I didn't even realize this whole scope of the rescue. And I'd always wondered what had gone on down there that day in this detail. So I am so grateful for this story and for the answers to some of the questions I had. So I just wanted to say personally, thank you for all of your reporting and the amazing stories you wove in here and detail and facts and everything. So I'm just personally super grateful. That, that really means the world to me. I just, it's so interesting to be, to live in a city that's a port city that grew up around its ports and so little information so many of us have about about what's going on in the water and and so yeah you're you're not alone so many people are hearing about this for the first time every time you know something new comes out and it's just tremendously remarkable history and i'm so so honored to be able to share it with the world in this way and i'm so sorry to hear about your friend thank you tell listeners a little about this point of view why you're such an expert in this arena and this the story you know, in general of the seaport and what made it so critical that day, maybe for people who don't live in New York City or whatever. Yeah. Well, even if you lived in New York City, very often people forget that Manhattan is an island. And the fact that Manhattan is an island played such a huge role in the outcomes for so many individuals that day. I think a piece of the history that ends up being really relevant throughout the story and really had critical life or death impacts on people is that this was a, a port city. And so New York City grew up around its waterways. We used to have along the western shore of Manhattan all these finger piers that were like stretched along the along the seawall that pointed out and it created 76 miles of usable frontage that's now 
basically vanished at this point. And so much of that had already been dismantled on September 11th in 2001. And that actually, that the lack of facilities for large boats to be able to load passengers safely, to be able to tie up along the seawall to provide firefighting water, all of that has really played a huge role in what happened that day. And and the fact that the boat lift was so tremendously successful, which it was, was in spite of many of the obstacles infrastructure-wise. So I think that's important for people to realize. For me, I came to this this book and this story very reluctantly, to be perfectly honest. I had served at Ground Zero working aboard as a marine engineer, working aboard fireboat John J. Harvey, which is a retired 1931 New York City fireboat that was called back into service, out of retirement, back into service to pump water. So fireboat John J. Harvey was called back into service to pump water at Ground Zero because when the towers collapsed, all the hydrants were buried and the water mains broke which meant that the only firefighting water that was available for days after the the attacks was provided by fireboats, active duty and retired fireboat John J. Harvey. It was river water. And there's this amazing story that the person responsible for calling John J. Harvey back into service is a friend of mine, Tommy White. He was then lieutenant, since retired FDNY captain. And he actually is the one who put out the call and said, hey, Harvey, can you pump and come back, drop off those passengers and come back? And he told me the story about firefighters doing a typical thing. I mean, it's so debris and dust clouded, right? And so people are, firefighters are trying to use the water from the hose lines to wash their faces. And they didn't expect that it was going to be salt water from the river. And so just that incongruence is just really interesting to think about. So that's how that's how I, I came to this story um, was, or that's the reluctance that I brought to the story, which was basically that I have my own psychological fallout from service at Ground Zero. And I was very reluctant to immerse myself in the stories that needed to be told. And what eventually overshadowed that was that I realized that I had a responsibility as a mariner, as a writer, a journalist, and someone who could speak both languages, you know, boat and and layperson to collect this history because 10 years had gone by and no one had collected it. And I felt a responsibility to bear witness and to do my very best to get the story out there. And it has been a very, very long slog. And two decades in this material is too long. And I'm really hoping that this is the anniversary when I can start to let some of it go. Well, I'm now I'm sorry I'm making you like talk about it again, but I know it's very much on your mind right now and you know this new narrative if you will about such a worldwide phenomenon is is such an interesting way to sort of sail into it if you will, right? For these for this time. Can you tell me a little more about your own experience and you don't have to go into like the nitty-gritty of all of it, but you know, you you craft the whole not craft, but you bring in so many different individual stories and you make it like a chronological, like through the day, here's what this person was doing. Here's what's happening on this boat. You know, here's this guy on the, turning around on I-95 and here's, you know, this nanny in a townhouse with the, you know, holding her baby running and here's like, right. So we see it through all these different points of views around the city, in, on the water and all around. So bring in your own experience now to it, like for that day and maybe the next day and 
you know, when, when you got involved yourself? So I got involved myself at Ground Zero on the 12th. So what had happened was I was very brand new as a as an engineer. I had only been doing this job for six months and I didn't have the same inclination that most mariners had, which was connecting the dots immediately that they had a unique skill set and, and unique equipment that could be called into service that day. And in fact, I was actually also informed by this this now apocryphal story that the new purchasers of the fireboat, which was purchased at a scrap auction, none of these folks were firefighters. There subsequently were many volunteer firefighters or firefighters who worked in other areas, with the exception of our beloved pilot who's no longer with us, Bob Lenny, who had served aboard the boat as its pilot for many, many, many years. And then she retired and he retired, and then they came back together in their retirement. And so what this is all means to say is that we had no business being at a fire and we were informed very clearly just right before this happened. It was somebody made a passing joke about, you know, hey, and if you ever need our help kind of thing. And the FDNY was just like, to be clear, <laughs> you are not to be anywhere near anything like this. And so what that meant was I was trapped in Brooklyn and I was wandering around trying to donate blood, trying to, you know, looking at people building stretchers and, and wanting to help with that and stuck on the wrong side of the island. And the next morning when I finally reached one of my crew members on the boat and I said, where are you? And he said, where do you think we are? And I said, how do I get there? And so I, pilot Bob Lenny had also arrived on the 12th and he had just come over via the Brooklyn Navy Yard where that's the FDNY Marine Division headquarters. And so I was able to catch a boat and, and head over and be there. And I'll never forget the experience of rounding the tip of Manhattan. And as you probably recall, the wind, the way that the wind was blowing for, for kind of some days was straight towards Brooklyn. And so just the, the visual of that, that column of, of smoke rising up and coming around the tip of Manhattan and, and wearing this PFD, this life jacket that was like adjusted for somebody much bigger than me. And, you know, I'm five, five and, you know, <laughs> that would, did not take up that much space. And this thing is just flapping in the breeze. And I just felt like it was such a, an apt metaphor for how I felt, which was just completely ill-equipped and not big enough for this, not big enough. And just knowing that everything was going to change immediately, there was no going back. And then being there, I just, there was no place in the world I wanted to be more. I just, it was such an honor to be able to be there and to help do this job of pumping water. And, you know, and it, and it took its toll as well. How have you coped with that? Like, what have you, what are, what have you done that's helped? all kinds of things that have helped and not helped. <laughs> I wish I had better answers. And in fact, I think that's part of why as a journalist, I write all of these stories about grief and trauma. And as a book collaborator, I, I help lots of people with memoirs and, and other books that have to deal with trauma. And I've learned, I've, I've decided that in my next life, I'm going to be a neuroscientist because I find that, that really, really fascinating. And so there's definitely not time in this life. But I, I try to learn as much as I can about how this actually works. And I'm really interested in remembering, reminding myself and sharing more with the world about the fact that, that these are physiological responses, that it's not like someone is choosing to have PTSD or choosing to have, it's not a weakness. It's literally something that lodges in your body. And so then it's about management. Like, how do you 
how do you manage it? And so I think there are a lot of good options out there. And as I'm writing about it a lot for CNN.com, people can actually go to my website and find tools that I try to say that I'm using, (laughs) but they're out there and hopefully others will be better than I am at actually putting them into play. But honestly, mindfulness practice is hugely, hugely, hugely helpful for me. Okay. We can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and It makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com. Or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Yeah, I feel like mindfulness to me means just like refusing to think past much past the moment. <laughs> I don't know if that's even really what it is. It's like, just like, I think it counts. <laughs> keep looking down, right? Like keep looking, like I start to worry and I'm like, I can't go there. I'm an, I have to stay here. Like I'm going to keep looking down and like get through this day and get through what I have to do next and not what I have to do. Not like what might happen in the next five years or, you know, six months or whatever else. I don't know. No, that, I mean, that's really valid. And in fact, one of the very core, and it's almost throughout any modality of treatment, one of the very first steps when you're spiraling into some kind of trauma or worry or panic or anxiety is to feel your feet on the Mm -hmm. ground. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know? And so that's a very grounded approach. You're spot on. You're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Well, I didn't have, you know, that was not my experience during that time of 9-11. I was at business school. I had just left and I had lived with my friend Stacy on and off for seven years. And she was in the North Tower right on the 93rd floor. So I like to believe that she was there and and didn't know what happened, but I actually have no idea. And this medium I spoke to once said that that wasn't the case and that actually she was with a colleague on a staircase. So I don't know what to believe, you know, but I, you know, they had said, don't travel or all that stuff. Right. So I was in Boston waiting for everything, like watching on the news and talking to all our friends back home. And I went to class the next morning and the teacher said, you know, if anybody needs to leave, we understand. And I was like, 
I have to get out of here. Like, I can't do this. And I got in my car and I was the only one on 95 driving from, or whatever the roads, you know, from Boston all the way. I stopped at my friend Stacy's family's home and saw her parents. And then I was like, I'm going to try to find her, right? Because remember, everybody was trying to find everybody. So I was still sure, like she was wandering around with amnesia or something like in a movie. But I remember just how eerie it was driving, nobody on any of the roads and like, hoping that I would be allowed in the city and like, you know, driving down to lower Manhattan and getting stopped everywhere and passing tanks and just craziness. So I remember that September 12th in the city very well and all the days after and just the loss. And, you know, I feel like at the time I coped mostly by, you know, crying and eating and, (laughs) you know, not, not good stuff, but you know, for me, it was crying is good. Crying is good. Eating, you know, whatever, you know, but for me, it changed my entire life. And I feel like it has for you. I mean, I'm looking at like the, you know, the work that you have done on this is monumental, truly. I mean, you're a historian and you deserve some sort of like prize. I don't know what those prizes are necessarily, but this reporting is really amazing. And I feel like this should be on everybody's shelf. Like this is like serious reporting here. So Oh my gosh. It's like, you know, the, the Shoah of 9-11, essentially, right? This collection of stories. Anyway, I'm rambling, but anyway, I just found that whole, you know, personally for the city, for the country, you know, as a New Yorker, as everything. And, you know, I have lived my life completely differently as a result of, of this. And, you know, sometimes I wonder what life, you know, the sliding doors of it all, you know, where, what would have happened to everybody, you know, not just me, but anyway. No, I'm right there with you. And definitely there was a turning point where, as you say, the sliding doors, it's like there are doors that just closed and doors that opened that, that would not have happened otherwise. And it, you know, it's, I'm not, you know, a, a policy wonk and, and I don't have that depth of knowledge, but it's really interesting to me to see the analysis by people who really are informed about that and just to see all of the changes that have happened. And just on a more, I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, global political scale, but I think it was a, somebody tweeted who I think was in, was really young when it happened. And it just, it's something that really stayed with me and I probably should have saved it. Right. And uh, so I could call it, call it back again, but it was something to the extent of, I was, I think she was three on that day. And she said, it never, never occurred to me about the shoes at the airport, that any of this was new or like, so just think about all the talk about doors that closed, like all of the sort of freedoms that we took for granted in this country, that those doors just closed. And it was like on a temporary basis and they never reopened. And so I think it's, there are so many reasons why this history is important. And you know, I could rattle on and on and on, but one of them is just so that we have the power of hindsight to see where things began. Mm-hmm. Like how, how did this trajectory take place? How did it happen? And really it's important to me to mention that one of the most just crystallized powerful pieces of this, of spending this time with this material and all of this reporting and, 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 crying with my sources as they walk through their most harrowing days over and over again is first off gratitude that they shared their stories with me. And some of them told the story in its entirety for the first time when we were having these conversations. And they did so, I think, out of that same obligation that I felt, which is feeling the need to bear witness to history and to make sure that this history isn't forgotten. And particularly at this time in our country where 
there's a such a powerful reckoning that's happening where we are reevaluating and, and drawing new attention and, and having new lenses on old history that we've been taught over and over again. And there is such brutality at the, the heart of the founding of our nation. That is absolutely true. And this is a piece of our heritage that we also have. Mm-hmm. And we need to keep that in mind. I mean, what you have is you have more than 800 mariners all spontaneously rising up to say, okay, people need help. There are people stacked 10 deep along the seawalls of Manhattan. Depending on which moment it was in time, they're dust covered, they're injured, burned, clothing melted onto their bodies. I mean, just horrific situations. And these mariners went got people onto their boats in ways that are not standard at all. You know, people climbing fendering, like ladders that were horizontal because that's the way they could bridge the gap. I mean, all of these details that I recount. And the thing that is just so overwhelming, and every time I think about it, it it's just moving all over again, even though I've, you know, had to sort of consciously numb myself out to do this work. When I picture that these mariners went over loaded their boats up, overloaded beyond, like beyond Coast Guard regulations, bringing on injured people, triaging them, giving them first aid, you know, whatever they needed to do, whatever they could do, giving them water to get the the debris out of their eyes. They bring them to safer shores in New Jersey, Brooklyn, Staten Island, any place that people needed to go. And then they disembarked passengers at unfamiliar docking facilities with, you know, subpar equipment, not what they needed for a normal operation. And they turned around and they looked at the island on fire. And it was on fire for months after this. And they went back over and over and over again. They went back. Everybody else was running away. And they said, we have this incredible opportunity to help. We can do something that no one else can do. And so there is just tremendous honor in that choice. And the big thing that I'm really, where I've landed after 20 years, and I just wrote a piece about it for the Daily Beast, is that we got stuck in these narratives of heroism. And like, there are the heroes, and we should applaud them, and then there's all the rest of us. And that is so dangerous, and so not the whole story. Because actually, these were just civilians. They were mariners, they had boats, they had training to be able to run a boat, to be able to like you know, there was serious professionalism. They had first aid training that was really helpful and they were just people. And what we know over and over again throughout history, that the first, first responders at a disaster are civilians. And over and over again, Rebecca Solnit wrote this beautiful book about it, Paradise Built in Hell. Over and over again, people use whatever they have at their disposal, the simplest skill sets that they have, and they help each other. And we lose track of that reality because so much of the news we consume is about division, divisiveness, the the wrongs that we do to each other. And so it's so important to me, especially now in the middle of a pandemic, that we remember that this is actually who we are as well. And we can be this. And all of us has the capacity to choose kindness, to choose compassion, to make a small choice. And usually you don't have to be on a boat gunning straight for the island on fire. There are small things we can do. And so that's that's the thing that gets me all these years later, that this, we need this. We need to start coming together. Oh, so emotional. How are you going to talk about this day after day? I mean, I mean, this is so intense and you're so right about everything and it's inspiring and 
upsetting and all of it all mixed together. And you're right. I mean, it doesn't take, there's so many little things that aren't so little, you know, telling a man who's laying down to get up, right? Just get up, keep walking, you know, ripping the t-shirt where when the person was making, you know, masks and the people helping the girl with the scratch corneas and, you know, all these little things, the firemen who land on top of each other. I mean, oh my gosh, it was just like a series of goodnesses, <laughs> kindnesses that people didn't even think twice about. They did it instinctively without a second thought. And that's the magic of it, really. And, and that, I mean, you nailed it. It's magic. And it's also utterly human. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we have this image of like, you know, when the plane's going down, not this particular plane, but like the plane's going down or you hit a bad patch of turbulence, you reach out to the hand of the stranger next to you. Why do you do that? Because in that moment, who they voted for, where they live, like what their politics are, whatever other ways, these arbitrary ways that we have decided to categorize each other, none of that matters. What you see in that other person is their humanity. And that's what the Mariners saw. It was just about shared humanity. So there's this really powerful moment for me that keeps coming back where I was speaking with the New York Waterways Captain Michael McPhillips, who had run off to sea, I think at age 16. This was, he was a mariner, like he had it in his blood. And he, despite the fact that the health complications that he had as a result of his service at Ground Zero, that meant the end of his maritime career. And he still says that he was lucky to have had the opportunity to serve in that way. And he also says, well, you know, of course, we didn't have a choice. And then he stopped himself and he said, oh, well, I guess we did have a choice, but like, it was never, like, it was a non-issue. There was no, there was no pause. There was no hesitation. There was no, or if there was a hesitation, for example, Rich Varela, who you mentioned, who put those, you know, handkerchiefs that he made, sort of masks that he made out of his own t-shirt and handed them out to people. He, when he was heading back from safety, he lived in New Jersey, he heads back, he could just go home and he looks at the second tower coming down and he looks at the faces of the firefighters who have just watched that happen. And he sees that they need help. And he says, I'm going back. And he goes back. And in that moment where he's crossing, he says, I might die today. And he's like, this is what I need to do. And again, I mean, this, this is hero stuff. And I feel like more often than not, talk about mindfulness, the more we recognize our own shared humanity, we make these choices over and over again. It's when we get stuck in our small stories, mm-hmm. our limited versions of ourselves, that we get stuck in these divisions. And I mean, talk about moments to realize our interconnectedness. We have a global pandemic. We have climate crisis that is unprecedented. We are in a crux point right now. And there are all these doors closing behind us. We have to come together. There's no choice. There is no other choice. We are completely interdependent. Our safety is absolutely contingent upon your safety, is contingent upon your safety. Like there's no getting around that. And I'm, I'm praying that this is the moment. This is the moment. Wow. Jessica, thank you. Thank you for your light conversation. (laughs) No, I mean it. I am grateful for the service again, not just that you showed up when you didn't have to, and it wasn't even a choice. You just did it, but that you're continuing to do it now. And 
getting these stories out there, telling the story of the day, having us all sort of live through some of the minor moments that make up history. I mean, I don't know. I, I just found this to be the most powerful read. It didn't even feel like a book. It was like a immersion into, you know, I don't know, the darkness that was, you know, even under the cloud. It just, I love books that make me feel, and this just didn't even feel like a book. It was such, it was so true to life. I mean, it, obviously it was true. Anyway, I was overwhelmed. And on 9-11, which is being aired today, and all of my own emotions and everybody else's emotions, like, I feel grateful to have had you take me for this ride down the path to this anniversary and everything. So thank you for your willingness. I mean, I think it's, it's a hard ask to ask people to, to return to these really, really difficult moments. And, but I think it's so instructive. I think, especially now, 20 years out, if we can't do it 20 years out and, and take the goodness, extract the goodness and the meaning making that is, is absolutely crucial to trauma, survival and healing. I mean, that, but I, I thank you for your willingness because it's not, it's, it's heavy lifting. So thank you. No, it's important. It's what we all, we all carry it anyway. You know? It's true. It's true. All right. I will be thinking of you on Saturday and all of the characters in the book and what they're going through and all of it in addition to my own experience. So thank you. <laughs> you too. And let's just, you know, as my hippie parents taught me, let's just send out the good vibes. Yeah. Send it out good vibes. <laughs> Stay in where our feet are. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Bye-bye. Exactly. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 